Isis Audiobooks presents an unabridged recording of Hogfather, written by Terry Pratchett, read by Nigel Planer. Everything starts somewhere, although many physicists disagree. But people have always been dimly aware of the problem with the start of things. They wonder aloud how the snowplough driver gets to work, or how the makers of dictionaries look up the spelling of words. Yet there is the constant desire to find some point in the twisting, knotting, ravelling nets of space-time on which a metaphorical finger can be put to indicate that here, here, is the point where it all began. Something began when the Guild of Assassins enrolled Mr. Tea Time, who saw things differently from other people. And one of the ways that he saw things differently from other people was in seeing other people as things. Later, Lord Downey of the Guild said, We took pity on him because he'd lost both parents at an early age. I think that on reflection we should have wondered a bit more about that. But it was much earlier even than that, when most people forgot that the very oldest stories are sooner or later about blood. Later on, they took the blood out to make the stories more acceptable to children, or at least to the people who had to read them to children, rather than the children themselves, who on the whole are quite keen on blood, provided as being shed by the deserving. That is to say, those who deserve to shed blood. Or possibly not. You never quite know with some kids. And then wondered where the stories went. And earlier still, when something in the darkness of the deepest caves and gloomiest forests thought, What are they, these creatures? I will observe them. And much, much earlier than that, when the Discworld was formed, drifting onwards through space, atop four elephants on the shell of the giant turtle, Great Atuin. Possibly, as it moves... It gets tangled like a blind man in a cobwebbed house in those highly specialised little space-time strands that try to breed in every history they encounter, stretching them and breaking them and tugging them into new shapes. Or possibly not, of course. The philosopher Didactylos has summed up an alternative hypothesis as things just happen, what the hell. The senior wizards of Unseen University stood and looked at the door. There was no doubt that whoever had shut it wanted it to stay shut. Dozens of nails secured it to the doorframe. Planks had been nailed right across. And finally it had, up until this morning, been hidden by a bookcase that had been put in front of it. "'And there's the sign, Ridcully,' said the Dean. "'You have read it, I assume, you know. "'The sign which says, "'Do not under any circumstances open this door.' "'Of course I've read it,' said Ridcully. "'Why do you think I want it opened?' Um, why, said the lecturer in recent runes, to see why they wanted it shut, of course. This exchange contains almost all you need to know about human civilization, at least those bits of it that are now under the sea, fenced off or still smoking. He gestured to Modo, the university's gardener and odd job dwarf, who was standing by with a crowbar. Go to it, lad, the gardener saluted. Right you are, sir. 
Against a background of splintering timber, Ridcully went on, It says on the plans that this was a, a, a bathroom. There's nothing frightening about a bathroom, for God's sake. I want a bathroom. I'm fed up with sluicing down with you fellows. It's unhygienic. You can catch stuff. My father told me that. Where you get lots of people bathing together, the Veruca gnome is running around with his little sack. Is that like the tooth fairy? said the dean sarcastically. I'm in charge here, and I want a bathroom of my own, said Ridcully firmly, and that's all there is to it, all right? I want a bathroom in time for Hogswatch night. Understand? And that's a problem with beginnings, of course. Sometimes when you're dealing with occult realms that have quite a different attitude to time, you get the effect a little way before the cause. From somewhere on the edge of hearing came a glinga linga 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 noise like little silver bells. At about the same time as the Arch-Chancellor was laying down the law, Susan Stowhellet was sitting up in bed, reading by candlelight. Frost patterns curled across the windows. She enjoyed these early evenings. Once she'd put the children to bed, she was more or less left to herself. Mrs Gator was pathetically scared of giving her any instructions, even though she paid Susan's wages. Not that the wages were important, of course. What was important was that she was being her own person and holding down a real job. And being a governess was a real job. The only tricky bit had been the embarrassment when her employer found out that she was a duchess, because in Mrs Gator's book, which was rather a short book with big handwriting, the upper crust wasn't supposed to work. It was supposed to loaf around. It was all Susan could do to stop her curtsying when they met. A flicker made her turn her head. The candle flame was streaming out horizontally as though in a howling wind. She looked up. The curtains billowed away from the window, which flung itself open with a clatter. But there was no wind. At least, no wind in this world. Images formed in her mind. A red ball. The sharp smell of snow. And then they were gone. And instead there were... Teeth, said Susan aloud. Teeth? Again? She blinked. When she opened her eyes, the window was, as she knew it would be, firmly shut. The curtain hung demurely. The candle flame was innocently upright. Oh, no, not again. Not after all this time. Everything had been going so well. Susan? She looked around. Her door had been pushed open and a small figure stood there barefoot in a nightdress. She sighed. Yes, Twyla? I'm afraid of the monster in the cellar, Susan. It's going to eat me up. Susan shut her book firmly and raised a warning finger. What have I told you about trying to sound ingratiatingly cute, Twyla? She said. The little girl said, You said I mustn't. You said that exaggerated lisping is a hanging offence and I only do it to get attention. Good. Do you know what monster it is this time? It's the big hairy one with... Susan raised the finger. Hmm? She warned. With eight arms, Twyla corrected herself. What, again? Oh, all right. She got out of bed and put on her dressing gown, trying to stay quite calm while the child watched her. So they were coming back. Oh, not the monster in the cellar. That was all in a day's work. But it looked as if she was going to start remembering the future again. She shook her head. However far you ran away, you always caught yourself up. But monsters were easy, at least. 
She'd learned how to deal with monsters. She picked up the poker from the nursery fender and went down the back stairs with Twyla following her. The gators were having a dinner party. Muffled voices came from the direction of the dining room. Then, as she crept past, a door opened, and yellow light spilled out, and a voice said, "'Ye gods, there's a girl in a nightshirt out here with a poker!' She saw figures silhouetted in the light and made out the worried face of Mrs. Gator. "'Susan, um, what are you doing?' Susan looked at the poker and then back at the woman. "'Twyla said she's afraid of a monster in the cellar, Mrs. Gator.' "'And you're going to attack it with a poker, eh?' said one of the guests. There was a strong atmosphere of brandy and cigars. "'Yes,' said Susan, simply. "'Susan's how a governess,' said Mrs. Gator. "'Her, I told you about her.' There was a change in the expression on the faces peering out from the dining room. It became a sort of amused respect. "'She beats up monsters with a poker,' said someone. "'Actually, that's a very clever idea,' said someone else. "'Little girl gets it into her head there's a monster in the cellar. "'You go in with a poker and make a few bashing noises while the child listens, "'and then everything's all right. "'Good thinking, that girl. Very sensible. Very modern.' "'Is that what you're doing, Susan?' said Mrs Gator anxiously. "'Yes, Mrs Gator,' said Susan obediently. "'This I've got to watch by Eo. "'It's not every day you see monsters beaten up by a girl,' said the man behind her. "'There was a swish of silk and a cloud of cigar smoke "'as the diners poured out into the hall. "'Susan sighed again and went down the cellar stairs "'while Twyla sat demurely at the top, hugging her knees. "'A door opened and shut. "'There was a short period of silence and then a terrifying scream. "'One woman fainted and a man dropped his cigar.' "'You don't have to worry. Everything will be all right,' said Twyla calmly. "'She always wins. Everything will be all right.' "'There were thuds and clangs, then a whirring noise, "'and finally a sort of bubbling. "'Susan pushed open the door. "'The poker was bent at right angles. "'There was nervous applause. "'Very well done,' said a guest. "'Very psychological. Clever idea, that, bending the poker. "'And I expect you're not afraid any more, eh, little girl?' No, said Twyla. Very psychological. Susan says don't get afraid, get angry, said Twyla. Thank you, Susan, said Mrs. Gator, now a trembling bouquet of nerves. And her now, Sir Geoffrey, if you'd all like to come back into the parlour, I, I mean the drawing room. The party went back up the hall. The last thing Susan heard before the door shut was dash convincing the way she bent the poker like that. She waited. Have they all gone, Twyla? Yes, Susan. Good. Susan went back into the cellar and emerged, towing something large and hairy with eight legs. She managed to haul it up the steps and down the other passage to the backyard, where she kicked it out. It would evaporate before dawn. That's what we do to monsters, she said. Twyla watched carefully. And now it's bed for you, my girl, said Susan, picking her up. Can I have the poker in my room for the night? "'All right. It only kills monsters, doesn't it?' the child said sleepily, as Susan carried her upstairs. "'That's right,' said Susan. "'All kinds.' She put the girl to bed next to her brother and leaned the poker against the toy cupboard. The poker was made of some cheap metal with a brass knob on the end. She would, Susan reflected, give quite a lot to be able to use it on the children's previous governess. "'Good night. Good night.' 
She went back to her own small bedroom and got back into bed, watching the curtains suspiciously. It would be nice to think she'd imagined it. It would also be stupid to think that, too. But she'd been nearly normal for two years now, making her own way in the real world, never remembering the future at all. Perhaps she had just dreamed things. But even dreams could be real. She tried to ignore the long thread of wax that suggested the candle had, just for a few seconds, streamed in the wind. As Susan sought sleep, Lord Downey sat in his study catching up on the paperwork. Lord Downey was an assassin, or rather, an assassin. The capital letter was important. It separated those curs who went around murdering people for money from the gentlemen who were occasionally consulted by other gentlemen who wished to have removed, for a consideration, any inconvenient razor blades from the candy floss of life. The members of the Guild of Assassins considered themselves cultured men who enjoyed good music and food and literature, and they knew the value of human life, to a penny in many cases. Lord Downey's study was oak-panelled and well-carpeted, the furniture was very old and quite worn, but the wear was the wear that comes only when very good furniture is carefully used over several centuries. It was matured furniture. A log fire burned in the grate. In front of it a couple of dogs were sleeping in the tangled way of large hairy dogs everywhere. Apart from the occasional doggy snore or the crackle of a shifting log, there were no other sounds but the scratching of Lord Downey's pen and the ticking of the long-case clock by the door. Small, private noises which only served to define the silence. At least this was the case until someone cleared their throat. The sound suggested very clearly that the purpose of the exercise was not to erase the presence of a troublesome bit of biscuit, but merely to indicate in the politest way possible the presence of the throat. Downey stopped writing but did not raise his head. Then, after what appeared to be some consideration, he said in a businesslike voice, the doors are locked, the windows are barred, the dogs do not appear to have woken up, the squeaky floorboards haven't. Other little arrangements which I will not specify seem to have been bypassed. That severely limits the possibilities. I really doubt that you are a ghost, and gods generally do not announce themselves so politely. You could, of course, be deaf, but I don't believe he bothers with such niceties, and besides, I am feeling quite well. Hmm. Something hovered in the air in front of his desk. My teeth are in fine condition, so you are unlikely to be the tooth fairy. I've always found that a stiff brandy before bedtime quite does away with the need for the sandman, and since I can carry a tune quite well, I suspect I'm not likely to attract the attention of old man trouble. Hmm. The figure drifted a little nearer. I suppose a gnome could get through a mouse hole, but I have traps down, Downey went on. Bogeymen can walk through walls, but would be very loath to reveal themselves. Really, you have me at a loss, hmm? And then he looked up. A grey robe hung in the air. It appeared to be occupied in that it had a shape, although the occupant was not visible. The prickly feeling crept over Downey that the occupant wasn't invisible, merely not in any physical sense there at all. Good evening, he said. The robe said, Good evening, Lord Downey. 
His brain registered the words. His ears swore they hadn't heard them. But you did not become head of the Assassin's Guild by taking fright easily. Besides, the thing wasn't frightening. It was, thought Downey, astonishingly dull. If monotonous drabness could take on a shape, this would be the shape it would choose. You appear to be a spectre, he said. Our nature is not a matter for discussion, arrived in his head. We offer you a commission. Ah, you wish someone inhumed, said Downey. Brought to an end. Downey considered this. It was not as unusual as it appeared. There were precedents. Anyone could buy the services of the Guild. Several zombies had in the past employed the Guild to settle scores with their murderers. In fact, the Guild, he liked to think, practised the ultimate democracy. You didn't need intelligence, social position, beauty or charm to hire it. You just needed money, which, unlike the other stuff, was available to everyone. Except for the poor, of course. But there was no helping some people. Brought to an end... That was an odd way of putting it. We can, he began. The payment will reflect the difficulty of the task. Our scale of fees is... The payment will be three million dollars. Downey sat back. That was four times higher than any fee yet earned by any member of the guild and that had been a special family rate, including overnight guests. No questions asked, I assume, he said, buying time. No questions answered. But does the suggested fee represent the difficulty involved? The client is heavily guarded? Not guarded at all, but almost certainly impossible to delete with conventional weapons. Downey nodded. This was not necessarily a big problem, he said to himself. The Guild had amassed quite a few unconventional weapons over the years. Delete. An unusual way of putting it. We like to know for whom we are working, he said. We are sure you do. I mean that we need to know your name, or names, in strict client confidentiality, of course. We have to write something down in our files. You may think of us as the auditors. Really? Uh, what is it you audit? Everything. I think we need to know something about you. We are the people with three million dollars. Downey took the point, although he didn't like it. Three million dollars could buy a lot of no questions. Really, he said... In the circumstances, since you are a new client, I think we would like um, payment in advance. As you wish. The gold is now in your vaults. You mean that it will shortly be in our vaults, said Downey. No, it has always been in your vaults. We know this because we have just put it there. Downey watched the empty hood for a moment, and then, without shifting his gaze, he reached out and picked up the speaking tube. Uh, Mr. Winvoe, he said, after whistling into it. Ah, good. Tell me, how much do we have in our vaults at the moment? Uh, approximately. Um, to the nearest million, say. He held the tube away from his ear for a moment and then spoke into it again. Well, be a good chap and check anyway, will you? 
He hung up the tube and placed his hands flat on the desk in front of him. Mm. Can I offer you a drink while we wait? he said. Yes, we believe so. Downey stood up with some relief and walked over to his large drinks cabinet. His hand hovered over the guild's ancient and valuable tantalus, with its labelled decanters of Murr, Nidge, Trop, and Uskub. It's a sad and terrible thing that high-born folk really have thought that the servants would be totally fooled if spirits were put into decanters that were cunningly labelled backwards. And also, throughout history, the more politically conscious butler has taken it on trust, and with rather more justification, that his employers will not notice if the whisky is topped up with any roux. "'And what would you like to drink?' he said, wondering where the auditor kept its mouth. His hand hovered for just a moment over the smallest decanter, marked Nozyop. "'We do not drink.' "'But you did just say I could offer you a drink.' Indeed. We judge you fully capable of performing that action. Ah. Downey's hand hesitated over the whiskey decanter, and then he thought better of it. At that point, the speaking tube whistled. Yes, Mr. Winbow? Really? Indeed. I myself have frequently found loose change under sofa cushions. It's amazing how it ma- No, 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 I, I wasn't being- Yes, I did have some reason to- uh, No- no blame attaches to you in any... No, no, I could hardly see how... Uh, yes, yes, Mr. Winbow, go and have a rest. What a good idea, thank you. He hung up the tube again. The cowl hadn't moved. We will need to know where, when, and, of course, <clears throat> who, he said after a moment. The cowl nodded. The location is not on any map. We would like the task to be completed within the week. This is essential. As for the who... A drawing appeared on Downey's desk, and in his head arrived the words, Let us call him the Fat Man. Is this a joke? said Downey. We do not joke. No, no, you don't, do you? Downey thought. He drummed his fingers. There are many who would say this uh, person does not exist, he said. He must exist. How else could you so readily recognise his picture? And many are in correspondence with him. Well, yes, of course, in a sense he exists. In a sense, everything exists. It is cessation of existence that concerns us here. Uh, finding him would be a little difficult. You will find persons on any street who can tell you his approximate address. Yes, of course, said Downey, wondering why anyone would call them persons. It was an odd usage. But as you say, I doubt that they could give a map reference. And even then, how could the, uh, the <laughs> fat man be inhumed? A glass of poisoned sherry, perhaps? The cowl had no face to crack a smile. You misunderstand the nature of employment it said in Downey's head. He bridled at this. Assassins were never employed. They were engaged, or retained, or commissioned, but never employed. Only servants were employed. Uh, what is it that I misunderstand exactly? he said. We pay. You find the ways and means. The cowl began to fade. How can I contact you? said Downey. 
We will contact you. We know where you are. We know where everyone is. The figure vanished. At the same moment, the door was flung open to reveal the distraught figure of Mr. Winvoe, the guild treasurer. Excuse me, my lord, but I really had to come up. He flung some discs on the desk. Look at them. Downey carefully picked up a golden circle. It looked like a small coin, but... No denomination, said Winvo. No heads, no tails, no milling, just a blank disc. They're all just... blank discs. Downey opened his mouth to say, Valueless? He realised that he was half hoping this was the case. If they, whoever they were, had paid in worthless metal, then there wasn't even the glimmering of a contract. But he could see this wasn't the case. Assassins learned to recognise money early in their careers. Blank discs, he said, of pure gold. Winvo nodded mutely. That, said Downey, will do nicely. It must be magical, said Winvo, and we never accept magical money. Downey bounced the coin on the desk a couple of times. It made a satisfyingly rich thunking noise. It wasn't magical. Magical money would look real because its whole purpose was to deceive. But this didn't need to ape something as human and adulterated as mere currency. This is gold, it told his fingers. Take it or leave it. Downey sat and thought while Winvo stood and worried. We'll take it, he said. But thank you, Mr. Winvo, that is my decision, said Downey. He stared into space for a while and then smiled. Is <clears throat> Mr. Tea Time still in the building? Winvo stood back. I thought the council had agreed to dismiss him, he said stiffly. After that business with uh, Mr. Teatime does not see the world in quite the same way as other people, said Downey, picking up the picture from his desk and looking at it thoughtfully. Well, indeed, I, I think that is certainly true. Please send him up. The guild attracted all sorts of people, Downey reflected. He found himself wondering how it had come to attract Winvo, for one thing. It was hard to imagine him stabbing anyone in the heart in case he got blood on the victim's wallet. Whereas, Mr. Tea Time... The problem was that the Guild took young boys and gave them a splendid education and incidentally taught them how to kill, cleanly and dispassionately, for money and for the good of society, or at least that part of society that had money and what other kind of society was there. But very occasionally, you found you'd got someone like Mr. Tea Time, to whom the money was merely a distraction. Mr. Tea Time had a truly brilliant mind, but it was brilliant like a fractured mirror, all marvellous facets and rainbows, but ultimately also something that was broken. Mr. Tea Time enjoyed himself too much, and other people also. Downey had privately decided that sometime soon Mr. Tea Time was going to meet with an accident. Like many people with no actual morals, Lord Downey did have standards, and tea time repelled him. Assassination was a careful game, usually played against people who knew the rules themselves or at least could afford the services of those who did. There was considerable satisfaction in a clean kill. What there wasn't supposed to be was pleasure in a messy one. That sort of thing led to talk. On the other hand, Tea Time's corkscrew of a mind was exactly the tool to deal with something like this. And if he didn't, well, that was hardly Downey's fault, was it? He turned his attention to the paperwork for a while. It was amazing how the stuff mounted up. But you had to deal with it. 
It wasn't as though they were murderers, after all. There was a knock at the door. He pushed the paperwork aside and sat back. Come in, Mr. Tea Time, he said. It never hurt to put the other fellows slightly in awe of you. In fact, the door was opened by one of the guild's servants, carefully balancing a tea tray. Ah, Carter, said Lord Downey, recovering magnificently. Just put it on the table over there, will you? Yes, sir, said Carter. He turned and nodded. Sorry, sir, I will go and fetch another cup directly, sir. What? For your visitor, sir. What visitor? Oh, when Mr. Tita... He stopped. He turned. There was a young man sitting on the hearthrug playing with the dogs. Mr. Tea Time. It's pronounced Te-a-tim-eh, sir, said Tea Time, with just a hint of reproach. Everyone gets it wrong, sir. How did you do that? Pretty well, sir. I got mildly scorched on the last few feet, of course. There were some lumps of soot on the hearthrug. Downey realised he'd heard them fall, but that hadn't been particularly extraordinary. No one could get down the chimney. There was a heavy grid firmly placed near the top of the flue. But there's a blocked-in fireplace behind the old library, said Tea Time, apparently reading his thoughts. The flues connect under the bars. It was really a stroll, sir. Really? Oh, yes, sir. Downey nodded. The tendency of old buildings to be honeycombed with sealed chimney flues was a fact you learned early in your career. And then, he told himself, you forgot. It always paid to put the other fellow in awe of you, too. He had forgotten they taught that, too. The dogs seem to like you, he said. I get on well with animals, sir. Tea Time's face was young and open and friendly. Or at least, it smiled all the time. But the effect was spoiled for most people by the fact that it had only one eye. Some unexplained accident had taken the other one, and the missing orb had been replaced by a ball of glass. The result was disconcerting. But what bothered Lord Downey far more was the man's other eye, the one that might loosely be called normal. He'd never seen such a small and sharp pupil. Tea Time looked at the world through a pinhole. He found he'd retreated behind his desk again. There was that about Tea Time. You always felt happier if you had something between you and him. "'You like animals, do you?' he said. "'I have a report here that says you nailed Sir George's dog to the ceiling.' "'Couldn't have it barking while I was working, sir.' "'Some people would have drugged it.' "'Oh,' Tea Time looked despondent for a moment, but then he brightened. "'But I definitely fulfilled the contract, sir. "'There can be no doubt about that, sir. "'I checked Sir George's breathing with a mirror as instructed. "'It's in my report.' "'Yes, indeed.' Apparently the man's head had been several feet from his body at that point. It was a terrible thought that Tea Time might see nothing incongruous about this. And the, um, the servants, he said, couldn't have them bursting in, sir. Downey nodded, half hypnotised by the glassy stare and the pinhole eyeball. No, you couldn't have them bursting in. And an assassin might well face serious professional opposition, possibly even by people trained by the same teachers but an old man and a maidservant who'd merely had the misfortune to be in the house at the time. There was no actual rule, Downey had to admit. It was just that over the years the Guild had developed a certain ethos, and members tended to be very neat about their work, even shutting doors behind them and generally tidying up as they went. Hurting the harmless was worse than a transgression against the moral fabric of society. It was a breach of good manners. It was worse even than that. It was bad taste. But there was no actual rule. 
That was all right, wasn't it, sir? said Tea Time, with apparent anxiety. It, um, it lacked elegance, said Downey. Ah, thank you, sir. I'm always happy to be corrected. I shall remember that next time. Downey took a deep breath. It's about that I wish to talk, he said. He held up the picture of, uh, what had the thing called him, the fat man. As a matter of interest, he said, how would you go about inhuming this gentleman? Anyone else, he was sure, would have burst out laughing. They would have said things like, is this a joke, sir? Tea Time merely leaned forward with a curious, intent expression. Difficult, sir. Certainly, Downey agreed. I would need some time to prepare a plan, sir, Tea Time went on. Of course, and... There was a knock at the door, and Carter came in with another cup and saucer. He nodded respectfully to Lord Downey and crept out again. Right, sir, said Tea Time. I'm sorry, said Downey, momentarily distracted. I have now thought of a plan, sir, said Tea Time patiently. You have? Yes, sir. As quickly as that? Yes, sir. Ye gods. Well, sir, you know we are encouraged to consider hypothetical problems. Oh, yes, yes, a very valuable exercise. Downey stopped and then looked shocked. You mean you have actually devoted time to considering how to inhume the Hogfather? He said weakly. You've actually sat down and thought out how to do it? You've actually devoted your spare time to the problem? Oh, yes, sir. And the soul cake duck? And the Sandman? And death? Downey blinked again. You've actually sat down and considered how... Yes, sir, I've amassed quite an interesting file. In my own time, of course. I want to be quite certain about this, Mr. Teatime. You have applied yourself to a study of ways of killing death? Only as a hobby, sir. Well, yes, hobbies, yes, I mean, I used to collect butterflies myself, said Downey, recalling those first moments of awakening pleasure at the use of poison and the pin. But, actually, sir, the basic methodology is exactly the same as it would be for a human. Opportunity, geography, technique. You just have to work with the known facts about the individual concerned. Of course, with this one, such a lot is known. And you've worked it all out, have you, said Downey, almost fascinated. Oh, a long time ago, sir. When, may I ask? I think it was when I was lying in bed one hogswatch night, sir. My gods, thought Downey, and to think that I just used to listen for sleigh bells. My word, he said aloud. I may have to check some details, sir. I'd appreciate access to some of the books in the dark library. But yes, I think I can see the basic shape. And yet this person... Some people might say that he is technically immortal. Everyone has their weak point, sir. Even death? Oh, yes, absolutely. Very much so. Really? Downey drummed his fingers on the desk again. The boy couldn't possibly have a real plan, he told himself. He certainly had a skewed mind. Skewed? It was a positive helix. But the fat man wasn't just another target in some mansion somewhere. It was reasonable to assume that people had tried to trap him before. He felt happy about this. Tea time would fail, and possibly even fail fatally, if his plan was stupid enough. And maybe the guild would lose the gold, but maybe not. 
"'Very well,' he said. "'I don't need to know what your plan is.' "'That's just as well, sir.' "'What do you mean? "'Because I don't propose to tell you, sir. "'You'd be obliged to disapprove of it.' "'I am amazed that you are so confident that it can work, Tea Time. "'I just think logically about the problem, sir,' said the boy. "'He sounded reproachful. "'Logically,' said Downey. "'I suppose I just see things differently from other people,' said Tea Time. "'It was a quiet day for Susan, "'although on the way to the park Gawain trod on a crack in the pavement, on purpose.' One of the many terrors conjured up by the previous governess's happy way with children had been the bears that waited around in the street to eat you if you stood on the cracks. Susan had taken to carrying the poker under her respectable coat. One wallop generally did the trick. They were amazed that anyone else saw them. Gawain, she said, eyeing a nervous bear who had suddenly spotted her and was now trying to edge away nonchalantly. Yes? You meant to tread on that crack so that I'd have to thump some poor creature whose only fault is wanting to tear you limb from limb. I was just skipping. Quite. Real children don't go hoppity-skip, unless they're on drugs. He grinned at her. If I catch you being twee again, I will knot your arms behind your head, said Susan levelly. He nodded and went to push Twyla off the swings. Susan relaxed, satisfied. It was her personal discovery. Ridiculous threats didn't worry them at all, but they were obeyed, especially the ones in graphic detail. The previous governess had used various monsters and bogeymen as a form of discipline. There was always something waiting to eat or carry off bad boys and girls for crimes like stuttering or defiantly and aggravatingly persisting in writing with their left hand. There was always a scissor man waiting for a little girl who sucked her thumb, always a bogeyman in the cellar. Of such bricks is the innocence of childhood constructed. Susan's attempts at getting them to disbelieve in the things only caused the problems to get worse. Twyla had started to wet the bed. This may have been a crude form of defence against the terrible clawed creature that she was certain lived under it. Susan had found out about this one the first night, when the child had woken up crying because of a bogeyman in the closet. She'd sighed and gone to have a look. She'd been so angry that she'd pulled it out, hit it over the head with a nursery poker, dislocated its shoulder as a means of emphasis, and kicked it out the back door. The children refused to disbelieve in the monsters, because, frankly, they knew damn well the things were there. But she'd found that they could very firmly also believe in the poker. Now she sat down on a bench and read a book. She made a point of taking the children every day somewhere they could meet others of the same age. If they got the hang of the playground, she thought, adult life would hold no fears. Besides, it was nice to hear the voices of little children at play, provided you took care to be far enough away not to hear what they were actually saying. There were lessons later on. These were going a lot better now she'd got rid of the reading books about bouncy balls and dogs called Spot. She'd got Gawain onto the military campaigns of General Tacticus, which were suitably bloodthirsty, but more importantly considered too difficult for a child. As a result, his vocabulary was doubling every week, and he could already use words like disemboweled in everyday conversation. After all, what was the point in teaching children to be children? They were naturally good at it. And she was, to her mild horror, naturally good with them. She wondered suspiciously if this was a family trait. And if, to judge by the way her hair so readily knotted itself into a prim bun, she was destined for jobs like this for the rest of her life. It was her parents' fault. They hadn't meant it to turn out like this. At least, she hoped charitably that they hadn't. 
They'd wanted to protect her, to keep her away from the worlds outside this one, from what people thought of as the occult, from, well, from her grandfather, to put it bluntly. This had, she felt, left her a little twisted up. Of course, to be fair, that was a parent's job. The world was so full of sharp bends that if they didn't put a few twists in you, you wouldn't stand a chance of fitting in. And they'd been conscientious and kind and given her a good home and even an education. It had been a good education, too. But it had only been later that she'd realised that it had been an education in... in... well, in education. It meant that if ever anyone needed to calculate the volume of a cone, then they could confidently call on Susan Stowe-Hellett. Anyone at a loss to recall the campaigns of General Tacticus or the square root of 27.4 would not find her wanting. If you needed someone who could talk about household items and things to buy in the shops in five languages, then Susan was at the head of the queue. Education had been easy. Learning things had been harder. Getting an education was a bit like a communicable sexual disease. It made you unsuitable for a lot of jobs, and then you had the urge to pass it on. She'd become a governess. It was one of the few jobs a known lady could do. And she'd taken to it well. She'd sworn that if she did indeed ever find herself dancing on rooftops with chimney sweeps, she'd beat herself to death with her own umbrella. After tea, she read them a story. They liked her stories. The one in the book was pretty awful, but the Susan version was well received. She translated as she read. And then Jack chopped down the beanstalk, adding murder and ecological vandalism to the theft, enticement and trespass charges already mentioned, but he got away with it and lived happily ever after without so much as a guilty twinge about what he'd done, which proves that you can be excused just about anything if you're a hero, because no one asks inconvenient questions. Now, she closed the book with a snap, it's time for bed. The previous governess had taught them a prayer which included the hope that some god or other would take their soul if they died while they were asleep, and if Susan was any judge, had the underlying message that this would be a good thing. One day, Susan averred she'd hunt that woman down. Susan, said Twyla from somewhere under the blankets. Yes? You know last week we wrote letters to the Hogfather? Yes. Only... In the park, Rachel says he doesn't exist, and it's your father, really, and everyone else said she was right. There was a rustle from the other bed. Twyla's brother had turned over and was listening surreptitiously. Oh, dear, thought Susan. She had hoped she could avoid this. It was going to be like that business with the soul-cake duck all over again. Does it matter if you get the presents anyway? she said, making a direct appeal to greed. Yes. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Susan sat down on the bed, wondering how the hell to get through this. She patted the one visible hand. Look at it this way, then, she said, and took a deep mental breath. Wherever people are obtuse and absurd, and wherever they have, by even the most generous standards, the attention span of a small chicken in a hurricane and the investigative ability of a one-legged cockroach, and wherever people are inanely credulous, pathetically attached to the certainties of the nursery, and in general have as much grasp of the realities of the physical universe as an oyster has of mountaineering. Yes, Twyla, there is a hogfather. There was silence from under the bedclothes, but she sensed that the tone of voice had worked. The words had meant nothing. That, as her grandfather might have said, was humanity all over. Good night. Good night, said Susan. It wasn't even a bar... It was just a room where people drank while they waited for other people with whom they had business. 
The business usually involved the transfer of ownership of something from one person to another. But then what business doesn't? Five businessmen sat round a table lit by a candle stuck in a saucer. There was an open bottle between them. They were taking some care to keep it away from the candle flame. It's gone six, said one, a huge man with dreadlocks and a beard you could keep goats in. The clock struck ages ago. He ain't coming. Let's go. Sit down, will you? Assassins are always late cause of style, right? This one's mental. Eccentric. What's the difference? A bag of cash. The three that hadn't spoken yet looked at one another. <laughs> well, well, what's this? You never said he was an assassin, said Chickenwire. He never said the guy was an assassin, d d did he, Banjo? There was a sound like distant thunder. It was Banjo Lillywhite clearing his throat. That's right, said a voice from the upper slopes. You's never said. The others waited until the rumble died away. Even Banjo's voice hulked. He's... The first speaker waved his hands vaguely, trying to get across the point that someone was a hamper of food, several folding chairs, a tablecloth, an assortment of cooking gear, and an entire colony of ants short of a picnic. Mental. And he's got a funny eye. It's just glass, all right, said the one known as Cat's Eye, signalling a waiter for four beers and a glass of milk. And he's paying ten thousand dollars each. I don't care what kind of eye he's got. I heard it was made of the same stuff they make them fortune-telling crystals out of. You can't tell me that's right. And he looks at you with it, said the first speaker. He was known as Peachy, although no one had ever found out why. Peachy was not someone you generally asked questions of, except the sort that go like, If, 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 if I give you all my money, could you possibly not break the other leg, thank you so much? Cat's eye sighed. Certainly there was something odd about Mr. Tea Time. There was no doubt about that. But there was something weird about all assassins. And the man paid well. Lots of assassins used informers and locksmiths. It was against the rules, technically, but standards were going down everywhere, weren't they? Usually they paid you late and sparsely, as if they were doing the favour. But Tea Time was OK. True, after a few minutes of talking to him, your eyes began to water and you felt you needed to scrub your skin even on the inside. But no one was perfect, were they? Peachy leaned forward. You know what, he said. I reckon he could be here already, in disguise, laughing at us. Well, if he's in here laughing at us, he cracked his knuckles. Medium Dave Lillywhite, the last of the five, looked around. There were indeed a number of solitary figures in the low, dark room. Most of them wore cloaks with big hoods. They sat alone in corners hidden by the hoods. None of them looked very friendly. Zobie daft, Peachy, Cat's Eye murmured. That's the sort of thing they do, Peachy insisted. They're masters of disguise. With that eye of his? That guy sitting by the fire has got an eye patch, said Medium Dave. Medium Dave didn't speak much. He watched a lot. The others turned to stare. He'll wait till we're off our guard, then go, Aha! said Peachy. They can't kill you unless it's for money, said Cat's Eye. But now there was a soupçon of doubt in his voice. They kept their eyes on the hooded man. 
he kept his eye on them. If asked to describe what they did for a living, the five men around the table would have said something like, this and that, or the best I can, although in Banjo's case he'd have probably said, duh. They were, by the standards of an uncaring society, criminals, although they wouldn't have thought of themselves as such, and couldn't even spell words like nefarious. What they generally did was move things around. Sometimes the things were in fact people, who were far too unimportant to trouble the Assassin's Guild with, but who were nevertheless inconveniently positioned where they were and could much better be located on, for example, a seabed somewhere. Chicken Wire had got his name from his own individual contribution to the science of this very specialised concrete overshoe form of waste disposal. An unfortunate drawback of the process was the tendency for bits of the client to eventually detach and float to the surface, causing much comment in the general population. Enough chicken wire, he'd pointed out, would solve that, while also allowing the ingress of crabs and fish going about their vital recycling activities. None of the five belonged to any formal guild, and they generally found their clients among those people who, for their own dark reasons, didn't want to put the guilds to any trouble, sometimes because they were guild members themselves. They had plenty of work. There was always something that needed transferring from A to B, or, of course, to the bottom of the C. Any minute now, said Peachy, as the waiter brought their beers. Banjo cleared his throat. This was a sign that another thought had arrived. What I don't understand, he said, is... Yes, said his brother. Ark Morpork's underworld, which was so big that the overworld floated around on top of it like a very small hen trying to mother a nest of ostrich chicks, already had Big Dave, Fat Dave, Mad Dave, Wee Davy and Lanky Die. Everyone had to find their niche. What I don't understand is how long has this place had waiters? Good evening, said Tea Time, putting down the tray. And they stared at him in silence. He gave them a friendly smile. Peachy's huge hand slapped the table. You crept up on us, you little, he began. Men in their line of business develop a certain prescience. Medium Dave and Cat's Eye, who were sitting on either side of Peachy, leaned away nonchalantly. Hi, said Tea Time. There was a blur and a knife shuddered in the table between Peachy's thumb and index finger. He looked down at it in horror. My name's Teatime, said Tea Time. Which one are you? I'm Peachy, said Peachy, still staring at the vibrating knife. That's an interesting name, said Tea Time. Why are you called Peachy, Peachy? Medium Dave coughed. Peachy looked up into Tea Time's face. The glass eye was a mere ball of faintly glowing grey. The other eye was a little dot in a sea of white. Peachy's only contact with intelligence had been to beat it up and rob it whenever possible, but a sudden sense of self-preservation glued him to his chair. "'Cause I don't shave,' he said. "'Peachy don't like blades, mister,' said Cat's Eye. "'And do you have a lot of friends, Peachy?' said Tea Time. "'Got a few, yeah?' With a sudden whirl of movement that made the men start, Tea Time spun away, grabbed a chair, swung it up to the table and sat down on it. Three of them had already got their hands on their swords. "'I don't have many,' he said apologetically. "'Don't seem to have the knack. On the other hand, I don't seem to have any enemies at all. Not one.' 
Isn't that nice? Tea time had been thinking in the cracking, buzzing firework display that was his head. What he had been thinking about was immortality. He might have been quite, quite insane, but he was no fool. There were in the Assassin's Guild a number of paintings and busts of famous members who had in the past put... No, of course that wasn't right. There were paintings and busts of the famous clients of members with a noticeably modest brass plaque screwed somewhere nearby bearing some unassuming little comment like departed this veil of tears on Groon three year of the sideways leech with the assistance of the honourable k.w dobson viper house many fine old educational establishments had dignified memorials in some hall listing the old boys who had laid down their lives for monarchan country the guilds was very similar except for the question of whose life had been laid. Every guild member wanted to be up there somewhere, because getting up there represented immortality. And the bigger your client, the more incredibly discreet and restrained would be the little brass plaque, so that everyone couldn't help but notice your name. In fact, if you were very, very renowned, they wouldn't even have to write down your name at all. The men around the table watched him. It was always hard to know what Banjo was thinking, or even if he was thinking at all, but the other four were thinking along the lines of bumptious little tit, like all assassins, thinks he knows it all. I could take him down one-handed, no trouble. But you hear stories, those eyes give me the creeps. So, <laughs> what's the job? said Chicken Wire. We don't do jobs, said Tea Time. We perform services, and the service will earn each of you $10,000. "'That's a lot more than Thieves' Guild's rate,' said Medium Dave. "'I've never liked the Thieves' Guild,' said Tea Time, without turning his head. "'Why not? They ask too many questions.' "'We don't ask questions,' said Chicken Wire, quickly. "'We shall suit one another perfectly,' said Tea Time. "'Do have another drink while we wait for the other members of our little troop.' Chicken Wire saw Medium Dave's lips start to frame the opening letters, "'Who?' These letters he deemed inauspicious at this time. He kicked Medium Dave's leg under the table. The door opened slightly. A figure came in, but only just. It inserted itself in the gap and sidled along the wall in a manner calculated not to attract attention. Calculated, that is, by someone not good at this sort of calculation. It looked at them over its turned-up collar. That's a wizard, said Peachy. The figure hurried over and dragged up a chair. No, I, I'm not, it hissed. I'm, I'm incognito. Right, Mr. Nito, said Medium Dave. You're just someone in a pointy hat. This is my brother Banjo. That's Peachy. This is Chicken. The wizard looked desperately at tea time. I, 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 I didn't want to come. Mr. Sidney here is indeed a wizard, said Tea Time, a student, anyway, but down on his luck at the moment, hence his willingness to join us on this venture. Exactly how far down on his luck, said Medium Dave. The wizard tried not to meet anyone's gaze. I made a, a, a misjudgment to do with a wager, he said. Lost a bet, you mean, said Chicken Wire. I paid up on time, said Sidney. Yes, but Chryso praise the troll has this odd little thing about money that turns into lead the next day, said Tea Time cheerfully, so our friend needs to earn a little cash in a hurry, and in a climate where arms and legs stay on. 
No one said anything about there being magic in all this, said Peachy. Our destination is... Probably you should think of it as something like a wizard's tower, gentlemen, said Tea Time. It isn't an actual wizard's tower, is it? said Medium Dave. They got a very odd sense of humour when it comes to booby traps. No. Guards? I believe so, according to legend, but nothing very much. Medium Dave narrowed his eyes. There's valuable stuff in this tower? Oh, yes. Why ain't there many guards, then? The person who owns the property probably does not realise the value of uh, of what they have. Locks, said Medium Dave. On our way, we shall be picking up a locksmith. Who? Mr Brown. They nodded. Everyone, at least everyone in the business, and everyone in the business knew what the business was, and if you didn't know what the business was, you weren't a businessman, knew Mr Brown. His presence anywhere around a job gave it a certain kind of respectability. He was a neat, elderly man who'd invented most of the tools in his big leather bag. No matter what cunning you'd used to get into a place or overcome a small army or find the secret treasure room, sooner or later you sent for Mr Brown, who'd turn up with his leather bag and his little springy things and his little bottles of strange alchemy and his neat little boots. And he'd do nothing for ten minutes but look at the lock and then he'd select a piece of bent metal from a ring of several hundred, almost identical pieces, and under an hour later he'd be walking away with a neat ten percent of the takings. Of course, you didn't have to use Mr Brown's services. You could always opt to spend the rest of your life looking at a locked door. All right, where is this place? said Peachy. Tea time turned and smiled at him. If I'm paying you, why isn't it me who's asking the questions? Peachy didn't even try to outstare the glass eye a second time. Just want to be prepared, that's all, he mumbled. Good reconnaissance is the essence of a successful operation, said Tea Time. He turned and looked up at the bulk that was Banjo and added, What is this? This is Banjo, said Medium Dave, rolling himself a cigarette. Does it do tricks? Time stood still for a moment. The other men looked at Medium Dave. He was known to Ankh Morpork's professional underclass as a thoughtful, patient man and considered something of an intellectual because some of his tattoos were spelled right. He was reliable in a tight spot and, above all, he was honest, because good criminals have to be honest. If he had a fault, it was a tendency to deal out terminal and definitive retribution to anyone who said anything about his brother. If he had a virtue, it was a tendency to pick his time. Medium Dave's fingers tucked the tobacco into the paper and raised it to his lips. Nope, he said. Chicken Wire tried to defrost the conversation. He's not what you'd call <laughs> bright, but he's, he's always useful. He can lift two men in each hand <laughs> by their necks. <gasps> said Banjo. He looks like a volcano, said Tea Time. Really, said Medium Dave Lillywhite. Chicken Wire reached out hastily and pushed him back down in his seat. Tea Time turned and smiled at him. I do so hope we're going to be friends, Mr Medium Dave, he said. It really hurts to think I might not be among friends. He gave him another bright smile. Then he turned back to the rest of the table. Are we resolved, gentlemen? They nodded. There was some reluctance given the consensus view that Tea Time belonged in a room with soft walls, but ten thousand dollars was ten thousand dollars. Possibly even more. Good, said Tea Time. He looked Banjo up and down. 
then I suppose we might as well make a start. And he hit Banjo very hard in the mouth. Death in person did not turn up upon the cessation of every life. It was not necessary. Governments govern, but prime ministers and presidents do not personally turn up in people's homes to tell them how to run their lives because of the mortal danger this would present. There are laws instead. But from time to time, death checked up to see that things were functioning properly, or to put it another and more accurate way, properly ceasing to function in the less significant areas of his jurisdiction. And now he walked through dark seas. Silt rose in clouds around his feet as he strode along the trench bottom. His robes floated out around him. There was silence, pressure and utter, utter darkness. But there was life down here, even this far below the waves. There were giant squid and lobsters with teeth on their eyelids. There were spidery things with their stomachs on their feet, and fish that made their own light. It was a quiet, black, nightmare world, but life lives everywhere that life can. Where life can't, this takes a little longer. Death's destination was a slight rise in the trench floor. Already the water around him was getting warmer and more populated, by creatures that looked as though they had been put together from bits left over from everything else. Unseen, but felt, a vast column of scalding hot water was welling up from a fissure. Somewhere below were rocks heated to near incandescence by the disk's magical field. Spires of minerals had been deposited around this vent, and in this tiny oasis a type of life had grown up. It did not need air or light. It did not even need food in the way that most other species would understand the term. It just grew at the edge of the streaming column of water, looking like a cross between a worm and a flower. Death kneeled down and peered at it, because it was so small. But for some reason, in this world without eyes or light, it was also a brilliant red. The profligacy of life in these matters never ceased to amaze him. He reached inside his robe and pulled out a small roll of black material, like a jeweller's toolkit. With great care, he took from one of its pouches a scythe about an inch long and held it expectantly between thumb and forefinger. Somewhere overhead... A shard of rock was dislodged by a stray current and tumbled down, raising little puffs of silt as it bounced off the tubes. It landed just beside the living flower and then rolled, wrenching it from the rock. Death flicked the tiny scythe just as the bloom faded. The omnipotent eyesight of various supernatural entities is often remarked upon. It is said that they can see the fall of every sparrow, and this may be true, but there is only one who is always there when it hits the ground. The soul of the tube worm was very small and uncomplicated. It wasn't bothered about sin. It had never coveted its neighbour's polyps. It had never gambled or drunk strong liquor. It had never bothered itself with questions like, Why am I here? Because it had no concept at all of here, or, for that matter, of I. Nevertheless, something was cut free under the surgical edge of the scythe and vanished in the roiling waters. Death carefully put the instrument away and stood up. All was well... Things were functioning satisfactorily, and... but they weren't. In the same way that the best of engineers can hear the tiny change that signals a bearing going bad long before the finest of instruments would detect anything wrong, death picked up a discord in the symphony of the world. It was one wrong note among billions, but all the more noticeable for that, like a tiny pebble in a very large shoe. He waved a finger in the waters... For a moment a blue door-shaped outline appeared, he stepped through it and was gone. 
The tube creatures didn't notice him go. They hadn't noticed him arrive. They never ever noticed anything. <laughs>